0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that the podcast will never ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. Now, getting back to the show, we've got a very special episode today focused on CAC, which stands for Customer Acquisition Cost. CAC is the bane of every company's existence and represents the cost of convincing a customer to buy a product or service. And it's a number that generally companies see increase over the life of the business, as in order to grow past your early adopters, you likely need to start acquiring customers who are less easily convinced and less eager to try your product. Additionally, we're seeing CACs for direct-to-consumer startups increase across the board as the cost of digital advertising on Google and Facebook is spiking. But fortunately, all hope is not lost. There are a few startups out there that are pioneering novel ways to not only acquire customers, but also build a resonant and memorable brand. So that is why I am very excited to announce Andrew Dudham, CEO and founder at Hims and Hers, as today's podcast guest. Now, Hims and Hers launched less than two years ago as just Hims and has since raised at a billion-dollar-plus valuation as it sets its sight on revolutionizing health and wellness for all. So it's no surprise that Andrew and his team have raised from investors like Forerunner Ventures and Founders Fund as they embark on a mission to make medicine more accessible and less uncomfortable. So in today's podcast, Andrew and I discuss all the quirky and novel ways Hims is building a brand that gets in front of consumers in a memorable and enjoyable fashion. We also talk about Andrew's vision to expand upon his platform that already offers everything from Viagra to skincare, birth control, and anti-anxiety meds. Lastly, we talk about the key performance metrics that are core to Hims and HERS and how the team measures their performance through concepts like multi-touch attribution. So why don't we get started? Andrew, how's it going?
1: I'm doing well. Yeah. How are you doing?
0: I am doing fantastic. So why don't we start with a bit on your background, because it's been pretty storied and well-tenured.
1: You know, so I have been building companies for a long time. It's uh, 11 or 12 years now. Started when I was about 18. I was over at Wharton in Philadelphia, and was spending most of my time hanging outside the engineering school instead of going to classes. And so at about 19, I dropped out, moved back to San Francisco, which is where I'm from originally. Had the opportunity to join an early Sequoia startup and really chomp my teeth on some hard problems and and learn quick. And and that was really the beginning. So for the last 10 years or so, I've built an incubator called Atomic with my co-founders where we've raised You know, well over a couple hundred million from great people like Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, where we build companies. I've had the opportunity to build probably over a dozen companies that we've turned into great businesses, sold many of them. And now I'm very thankful to be able to lead and co found Him's and Hers, which has just been an unbelievable business that has the opportunity to help millions and millions of men and women around the country and around the world with getting easier, more affordable, better, more enjoyable healthcare access. So I've, you know, been really privileged and for the last decade I've been able to really rinse and repeat a lot of the operational zero to one kind of over and over and over again and so, you know, have a lot of war stories I could tell you and a lot of patterns maybe to keep your eyes open for.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely dive into those lessons learned patterns later on, but would love if you could set some context on the founding story and rationale for Hims and Hers.
1: You know, so with Hims and Hers, one of the things at a very human level that that I've struggled with, and I think a lot of people that I know have struggled with, is that taking care of yourself is actually really quite hard. And it's hard for a couple of reasons. It's hard because sometimes it's really scary to take care of yourself. You know, there's there's fear that maybe... Um, You're going to find out something that's really bad about your health and your wellness. Or maybe you feel like you're alone. Maybe you're the only one that suffers from public speaking and you think nobody else is scared of that. And, you know, you get anxiety attacks over that. Or maybe you're scared because, you know, you're losing your hair or you're getting acne and you're in your 30s. And why are you getting acne? Something's wrong, right? Like, that doesn't seem normal. You know, so some of these difficulties around being well and taking care of yourself are cognitive and fear-based and stigma-based some of them are institutionally based. It's expensive to go see a doctor, right? And, and man, I've got acne. Like, Does that mean I need to go see a dermatologist or do I need to go see my general practitioner or can I walk into a clinic um, on the corner and take care, right? So there's confusion often in who do I see? How much is it going to cost? And then often, unfortunately, you know, the byproduct of it is not particularly friendly or affordable, right? So it might take weeks to see a doctor. And then you stand in line for three hours and you've taken three or four hours off of work and you had to get a babysitter for your kids. And then you go to the pharmacy every month to pick up the medicine and you wait in line for an hour to pay kind of crazy prices. And so at a very human level across emotional and institutional and the system of itself, it's just really hard to be well. And so the vision for Hims and Hers was really simple, which was, can we build a brand? Can we build an experience? Can we build a platform and a set of products that makes that just awesome? It makes it amazing. It makes you feel normal. It helps educate you about how common these things are. It helps educate you about ways you can take care of them. It makes it almost free to see a doctor. And to see a doctor from the comfort of your bedroom, from your phone, You know, so you don't need to kind of materially change your lifestyle to get access. And then on top of that, you know, once you've seen a doctor, to be able to get access to medicines and products that are beautiful and that are effective and that actually work and that you enjoy using and that are just really easy to kind of have sent to your house and things that kind of make you feel better. And so, The vision was really to be able to build something people love, but something that really empowers them to be well and empowers them to be able to take control and have access to the care that they need.
0: So as I think about the value prop as a consumer, you've reduced friction from multiple angles, right? From a price perspective, you're cheaper because you've got a more innovative diagnosis and delivery model. And then because of that delivery model, you're also saving the consumer the time it would take to commute and wait in the waiting room. And then lastly you've removed a really key part to medical friction, which is comfort and stigma. Because going to go see a therapist or a doctor is such a process. So all in, I see HEM's mission as making medicine more successful.
1: That's right. That's exactly correct.
0: Great. So with that though, as you pioneer telemedicine, how are you anticipating the inevitable regulatory obstacles?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the beautiful thing about the healthcare system and the healthcare regulation, is it's all set around patient care and it's set around patient quality of care. And so the system very quantifiably is trying hard to figure out how do we encourage more people to take care of themselves, right? How do we encourage more people to get access to care? That's the first thing that regulation and access is all about. And the second thing is how do you make sure that that care is of the absolute highest quality? How do you standardize it? How do you quantify it? How do you track it? And I think the best thing about telemedicine and what's happening right now is that using tools like your phone and using tools like the internet and the digital aspects and modalities that are very integral in every other industry will allow us to do both of those things much better. And in ways that regulators and in ways that medical boards and in ways that people can actually really look at and very transparently see what is good for people, right? And so I think, you know, it's a very early stage for telemedicine. It's, you know, we're just a couple of years in to legislation changing that allows customers to be able to get access to a physician from their phone. You know, so it's still so early. But I think everything that we've seen is that it unlocks a huge proportion of the population that otherwise was not seeking care which is so important for the health industry. And then also because they're using tools that are digital tools, we can actually do it better and we can track it better. And when you're talking about healthcare and high quality healthcare on mass, right, and tracking it for millions of people, being able to use digital tools is the only way to do it. And it's the safest and it's the best way to do it. And so I think we're really set up for success. I think the consumer demand proves that the access unlock is huge. And I think the pure fact of the platforms we're building these things on, the technology tool sets we're using will allow us to really confidently prove that the quality of care is excellent and it's incredibly respectable care. And so, you know, we've done a lot of things in the last couple of years. We actually just recently brought on Patrick Carroll as a chief medical officer. Patrick most recently was the chief medical officer of Walgreens for five years So it's a huge move for somebody like him to join us. And it's because, you know, he's all about patient safety and clinical care and being able to statistically quantify that. And there's really no better way to do that than with a a digital platform that's providing the medicine. We're really excited about it.
0: That's wonderful. And I think the key part for me there was how you're expanding the market, where you're touching customers and patients who otherwise wouldn't have engaged in the market in the first place, kind of like how Uber and Lyft expanded the total addressable taxi market into the much larger total addressable rideshare market from its core user base. And I think that's one of the main reasons why HIMSS has been one of the darlings of the health tech and direct-to-consumer space and why you guys have been able to raise at a billion-dollar valuation in less than two years. So could you share some sort of metric that can give the audience a sense for scale?
1: Sure. So we've been live for just about 18 months now. So very, very early in in our lifespan. You know, it's funny, when we built the system, we were expecting to be able to support maybe 30, 40, maybe even 50 customers a day on the platform when we first launched. And I was wildly wrong. I was wildly wrong about the amount of people that need access to great care. And the amount of people that have built up demand for that access, but just who had been so kind of beat down by how difficult it is to get care. And so the first week we had, I think it was maybe 500 orders a day coming in, 500 patients a day coming in to talk to a doctor. I mean, everything broke. I guarantee you everything broke because we didn't build for that scale. And so we had to quickly fix it. But in our first week, we did 1 million in sales. And that to this day is still the smallest week that we've ever had. And so it continues to scale. We now see thousands of patients a day um, on our platform across everything from birth control, contraception, women's skincare, melasma, um, hair loss, vitamin supplements, performance anxiety related medications, sleep, erectile dysfunction. I mean, there's so many things, but now we see thousands of people a day coming. And and it's great because, as you said, the vast majority of these people, it's upwards of 90% of these people. Are people who haven't interacted with the system in a very long time so that they're coming to us because they've really been kind of locked out of what's currently available
0: and i think that's a good segue into what i'd like to focus today's episode on which is customer acquisition cost and the reason being because i think hims and hers has been very very innovative in how you've approached building a brand and finding really creative spaces. Thank you. So starting with that first week of demand, was that organic traffic or was that through paid search or marketing? Because I think oftentimes what founders struggle with upon product launch is how do I get the flywheel going without a ton of marketing dollars to throw at the problem?
1: Yeah. You know, probably one of the biggest mistakes I hear companies and founders and CEOs that I'm friends with, you know, make is this idea that if you build something amazing, people will come. And it's a very human desire for that to be true, right? If you build the best product, if you build the best business, if you build the best offering, people will come. And the very unfortunate reality is that's not always what happens. You really do need to think strategically about how do you get people to your business? How do you educate them that your brand exists and that your product is amazing? And how do you do that in some type of proprietary way such that, you know, the woman across the street building the competitor can't just go and do it also, right? Like how do you really do it in some type of strategic manner so that that you're really able to stand out from the crowd? And so I don't think a lot of teams spend as much time on that as they should. And I think it's often an afterthought. And I think it results in, frankly, a lot of money going into Facebook, a lot of money going into Instagram. And i see a lot of companies that have you know 80 90 percent of their distribution entirely dependent on those couple of channels and that's a really big risk because inevitably those channels saturate the saturation curves after 18 months or two years on those channels is not particularly pretty and they're also what i would call an open marketplace channel which means anybody can launch a product throw some money into those channels and all of a sudden The costs to you just skyrocket, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so with HIMS and with HERS, we really wanted to tackle how do you educate people about the brand in a very diversified manner, and not only in diverse ways, but in unique ways, in ways that people look at the advertisement, and they see it happen, and they go, oh, wow, that's weird, that's new, that's different, that stands out, and part of it is creative and doing stuff that's really unique. And part of it is thinking about inventory in a new way. And so one of the things that we thought about a lot, and we thought about this about a year and a half to two years before we launched. So by the time we actually launched, we had a lot of this in motion, but where are areas that we can create inventory instead of buy inventory, right? So it's easy to be able to spend money on existing channels. It's a lot harder to make channels, but if you make them, you often can get a cost advantage and you can also get them exclusive. And so in, in the year prior to launching, we spent a lot of time testing things like takeovers of gym locker rooms, flying planes over Venice Beach, you know, in the Hamptons, advertisements right in front of urinals. So as a male, you're standing in front of the urinal and you see an ad.
0: <laughs> That's exactly where I first found out about the brand was at the urinal at Giant Stadium. <laughs>
1: There you go. You know, and the strategy behind that sounds kind of crazy, and it is crazy. But if you just think really simply and kind of in first principle, where does your demographic spend 30 seconds completely uninterrupted? Where do they spend 30 seconds dedicated to something without distraction focused? And when you look at that lens and you think about, okay, where are all the ways, you know, I can find a man or a woman kind of focused and dedicated so that I can communicate my offering and my value to them in a beautiful way, things like urinals pop up, you know? Because as a guy, you're standing there, you're highly incentivized to not look left to right, you know, and you're looking (laughs) looking straight ahead for usually 20 to 30 seconds. And so we tested that creative, worked phenomenal. We rolled it out. And we have a lot of examples like that and we continue to do that. And so I really think about distribution and marketing strategy as a portfolio. You know, as an investor, as a VC, you're constantly making bets and investments and some of them work out and some of them don't. But we always allocate a certain amount of capital and we always allocate a large proportion of the marketing brains to finding and testing and evaluating completely new channels and completely new inventory that in many situations we have created.
0: That's wonderful, and have any channels specifically come to mind that have surprised you on the upside as you think about placing bets?
1: (laughs) Um, I am constantly surprised all of the time by channels that work and don't work. A good example, last week, there was a world championship tournament for cornhole. And (laughs) um, our marketing leads came to me maybe three or four months ago and said, hey, we have this opportunity to sponsor a cornhole championship game. And I had no idea. I thought they were joking entirely. But they, <laughs> they set it up as, hey, this might be one of the best cornhole matches ever based on some of these dynamics. They were looking at the things, They were looking at the trends. They were looking that ESPN might consider picking up the tournament and doing reruns of it. And so we took that bet. That cornhole match <laughs> turned out to be one of the best cornhole tournaments in history. It was broadcasted on ESPN over and over and over again. It continues to be broadcast on ESPN over and over and over again. It was picked up by SportsCenter. It was picked up by Barstool Sports. It's been tweeted about and retweeted about hundreds of thousands of times. And that was a crazy idea of sponsoring a cornhole tournament. So, you know, I'm constantly surprised, you know, for every example like that, there's one that doesn't work as well, right? But the key is just to be in this kind of growth mindset, this testing mindset and have it be a muscle that is ingrained in the company and not something that is done as a side thought it really is something that needs to be core to who you are as a business if you want to be able to grow consistently
0: and as i think about innovative marketing channels i think about all the direct-to-consumer companies that are seeing spiking cax as facebook or other social channels get more competitive and everyone is now looking for new channels to arbitrage But on the flip side, one of the benefits, I think, with Facebook or Google Ads is that direct attribution piece, right, where you know exactly what your ROI is on ad spend thanks to the reporting, where, for example, it says 10 people saw this ad, and then out of those 10 impressions, two people clicked on it, and then one person actually bought your product. So if you spent $30 on those 10 impressions and one person bought the product, you know that your all-in margin needs to be at least $30. But When you're spending a ton of money on billboards or on urinals or on TV at cornhole tournaments, in addition to online, which of course are really critical for brand awareness and which might ultimately lead to a digital purchase, it's still tough to quantify the ad ROI on those billboards, right? So how do you think about measuring that ROI and effectively investing in these harder to quantify avenues?
1: You know, I think as a company... If your mission and vision is large enough, and if your ability to invest in marketing and different channels is there from a cash perspective, you know, the foundation of understanding multi-touch attribution is just critical. So really being able to say quantitatively, be able to say, hey, this person, you know, was at the Giants game, and there's a decent chance that they saw the urinal because They came to the store right after our Giants game TV commercial went live or whatever it might be. And then they also go through New York based on out-of-home tracking, right? And they also likely saw this Facebook ad based on this. And in the post-purchase survey, they said they also heard us on a podcast. You know, doing all of these different things... And being able to piece them together is really critical it's very difficult but it's really valuable and so we have gotten good i think we can keep getting better and we we try to keep getting better all the time at figuring out the flow of a consumer you know a consumer first sees this then they see that then they come to the site then they leave and then they see the tv commercial then they come back and then how do you want to attribute all of those costs to that acquisition And so it requires some pretty serious resource from an analytical and data science standpoint. But I would encourage people that have the big ambitions to do that and to invest in those teams, because nowadays you actually can do these things. You can track. And it's not necessarily as clean as Facebook's one-to-one attribution model, but you can get 80 to 90% of the way there. And you can do holdout tests where you can prove that your matching is accurate or it's close, Right. So there are mechanisms and tools to figure it out. And so, you know, I would highly encourage people to take that bet and make that investment if, if they really do believe that they've got, you know, multiple years of deploying a lot of capital into a lot of different channels.
0: Yeah. And just to break that down for the audience, multi-touch attribution is essentially the concept of tying together a series of touch points with a consumer and quantifying the dollar cost impact. So maybe I, as a consumer, walked by a billboard, which you can kind of guesstimate that I saw it based off of my mobile geolocation data. And then let's say two weeks later, I saw an online banner ad where you've tied my internet cookie address to my mobile ID So you know that the person who saw the billboard two weeks ago is actually me surfing the internet right now. And then ultimately, after, let's say, another series of TV ads or mail circulars, I ultimately purchase a product. So I think the way the audience should think about multi-touch attribution is more or less trying to quantify the impact of dollars spent across marketing channels into one specific consumer action. Exactly. So do you have any advice or insights for the audience around lowering their CAC?
1: Lowering your CAC? Oh man, that's something I think about all day. (laughs) And I think most teams think about a lot of You know, I think to step back, what I would probably say to people is that lowering your CAC is not always the metric that matters. Increasing your CAC to lifetime value ratio is the thing that matters. And so I think there's often a fallacy in that the lower the CAC, the better the business. Oh, wow, you know, your CACs keep coming down 10% month over month. That's incredible. This business is going to be huge. But that could also mean that you're just acquiring worse and worse customers. Or it could mean that you're doing things in the flow. Maybe you've ripped out steps during the flow, you know, or maybe you've ripped out steps during the product pages or the checkout pages just to get people through and to click that buy button. And because of that the people who are buying are kind of confused right because you tricked them or maybe you didn't give them enough information or maybe you didn't give them enough selection but it decreased your tax right and so what i actually would encourage teams to do is not necessarily always look to decrease costs but to try to increase the ratio between the cost and the lifetime value and so sometimes that means actually acquiring more expensive customers because the quality of that customer is much better. And sometimes that means seeing that the quality of the customer is really great, but you need to figure out how to optimize the front end so that the cost is lower, but you need to make sure you're doing it in a way that's not decreasing the quality of the customer, right? So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. So that's the first thing I would say is I, I would think more about CAC to LTV ratio versus just decreasing the costs. Now to, I guess, specifically answer the question, say we have a customer that's amazing. And it costs us $100 to acquire that customer. And we need to figure out how to acquire them for $80. What I would encourage people to do is to test over and over and over creative and to keep doing that over and over and over again. And I would test different audiences over and over and
0: over again. Because what testing is king, right? Yeah,
1: it's really like split testing, A-B testing, creative saturation is a real thing. You know, just think about it. You're on Instagram, you're flipping down the page, you see an ad for some cool shoes. Three days later, you see the same ad for some cool shoes. Three days later, it's the same ad for some cool shoes. right? And that was all within just over a week. So within a week, you saw the ad three times, you didn't buy, yet we as a company are still spending money to get that ad in front of you. And so at a certain point, you need to realize that that creative isn't resonating. And so we probably go through hundreds of pieces of creative on our channels on a weekly basis. And it's a hundred different types of creative, completely different. And it's really hard to do that, right? Because it you kind of get to the bottom of the barrel where like, what else could we test? And you need to take inspiration all over the place. It could be a cactus, right? When you're walking down the street, you see a really hilarious cactus, and you're like, oh man, that kind of that could kind of like spark a new attention and maybe it tells the story in a completely different way or maybe it's a testimonial, or maybe it's beautiful product shots, or maybe it's Snoop Dogg, you know, talking uh, as a caricature. I don't, you know, like literally, if you look at the hims and hers creative, they're so different. And in a lot of situations, they're so weird, but it's really intended of let's get really creative and think about all the ways we could tell this message in kind of breakthrough manners, right? In manners that jump off the screen or jump off the page or jump off the urinal wall, you know, And so I would really encourage companies to invest in that creative, invest in the testing muscle, and to try things that don't always seem like they'll work. I'm constantly over and over and over again, shocked and surprised by what I think will work and what actually ends up working. And I'm wrong most of the time. And I think having that humility and understanding that pretty intrinsically is really important to marketing because no matter how much, you think you understand the consumer, you know, people are so inundated with marketing all over the place that doing something unique and breakthrough often means doing something that doesn't seem like it will work.
0: I totally agree with everything you said there. And first of all, really appreciate you reframing the conversation more broadly to cover LTV and CAC, which is the ratio between how much a consumer spends with you over their lifetime versus how much it costs to acquire that customer. Because that's really the forest you need to see through the trees, as opposed to just myopically focusing on acquisition cost. Because, yes, maybe you are acquiring new customers for a higher dollar amount, but they also might be higher quality customers who buy more often. And then beyond that ratio, I'm a huge fan of your perspective around content, as I'm of the opinion that we are truly immersed in the age of content in every way today. And that content differentiates the best brand. Yeah. So it's been really fun to watch you guys put out all of this innovative and (laughs) curious content out there as you build this platform, which leads me to my last question here around the business, which is what is your ultimate vision for HIMS and HERS?
1: Yeah, you know, the vision, I think, for HIMS and HERS long-term is one that, quite frankly, is something that I and our team, I think, could probably be working on for a decade or two decades. And I think that's why we've, you know, raised so much capital so quickly We've kind of communicated to the market such large ambition and have hired a team that is representative of those ambitions. But the vision is really to help this country be healthier and to help the people in this country have access to the things they need in ways that are more affordable, more efficient, more beautiful, encourage you to take the things you need more often, and to overall just be a lot healthier. And so, you know, when I look at the existing systems for which allow us to be well, the healthcare systems, et cetera, you know, they were built 50 plus years ago and they're great systems and they help millions of people. And so I'll never, you know, I'll never be the one to talk poorly about them, but the opportunity to be able to create new systems and to leverage those learnings, but to build something that's modern and for how we as people today and as how the generation behind us has been brought up to learn and to communicate on tools like their phone and their watches, et cetera, is a big opportunity. And so I think the vision here is to continue to build platforms and products and services and a brand that encourage people to be well and encourage people to take action about their health and make it really, really simple to do that. Whether it's because we connect you with the right doctor, we connect you with the right product, we educate you with the right materials, we connect you with the right in-person physician or assist service, whatever it might be. I think that's kind of the long-term vision. And I think it's one that we we likely can be working on for a very, very long time.
0: So shifting to the last part of the podcast here, which centers around the title, pattern recognition. What are the consistent patterns or themes you see across successful D2C businesses?
1: I would say that there are two themes that I think are interesting that I've seen fairly consistently. The first is some of the best companies I've seen on the direct-to-consumer space, they are approaching it in such a manner where there's some type of structural change in the dynamics of how the product is being delivered. And so what I mean by that you know, is they're not taking something that is ugly and they're making it pretty, and then they're selling it. They might be taking something that's ugly and making it pretty, but that ugly thing was also hard to get. Or that ugly thing was maybe really expensive to get, or maybe it was impossible to get. And so the means for which they're bringing the products to the consumer and the structure for which they're breaking in some interesting manner, I think is a pattern that is really interesting to look out for. And I think it discerns between you know, direct-to-consumer businesses that I think are kind of nice to have and are beautiful, and it gives consumers option through more beautiful products versus the ones that I think are, have an opportunity to really break through and have really real changes. So I think that's one pattern that I think is really interesting that I look for. The other is, you know, for direct to consumer businesses, what are businesses that have the opportunity to become platforms and have the opportunity to grow past whatever they're doing today?
0: Not just a single product, right?
1: That's right. I think, you know, the last five, six years, there's been an incredible amount of Wealth created, incredible amount of single products that are now more beautiful than they ever were created, and I think that's wonderful. But I think in order to create an enduring business, when you look at Johnson and Johnson, when you look at uh, Procter and Gamble, when you look at um, any of these companies—Allergan, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare companies—right, the ones that are enduring, Amazon have. Very quickly, been able to continuously expand in ways that offer more and more value to their customers. And sometimes that expansion is super obvious. You know, we sell hair loss medication, and we also sell shampoo, right? So it's it's pretty linear. And sometimes it could be we deliver you books, and now we also power cloud storage, right? Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't necessarily need to be obvious. But I think founders and businesses that think like that have an opportunity to build really big businesses and really big platforms. And usually, if you can think about that a little bit earlier, the better, right? Because there's things you need to do to set that up, but it's not always possible. But you know, when I see businesses like that, that have those ambitions, they kind of self-select themselves into a different bucket of intrigue for me.
0: Those are both really insightful. And what I love about the latter point around building a platform is as a software investor myself, we always think in the enterprise world about building a platform as opposed to just a product. And it's funny to see that the meshing between the consumer world and and the enterprise world where some of these trends and some of these patterns make sense in both. So that, that was a really nice connection for me to just have there. But as you think about your first startup experience, building a number of startups at Atomic, and then also at HEMS, what are some lessons learned in those prior experiences that you've made sure to implement in building HEMS and HERS?
1: I would hire very intentionally and I would fire very quickly. Probably something I would I would give as advice to people. You know, the people that you surround yourself with, especially in the early years that become the foundation of what the company becomes and the culture that the company becomes is, is critical. And I've mess this up multiple times and I've done it right multiple times. And so I'm constantly learning and and making mistakes and trying to fix those and rectify those. But I think hiring is really foundational. And so doing that thoughtfully, doing that slowly and in a considered fashion is important. And then also when you've made a mistake and somebody isn't right, being quick to rectify that, that's something I would absolutely recommend Um, on the capital side You know, as a founder and CEO, your number one job is to make sure there's cash in the bank. You know, you need to make sure you're never running out of money. You need to make sure your team always has the opportunity and the timeline to be able to execute on the vision to be able to get to the next milestone. And so I would always recommend teams be really thoughtful about cash management, cash deployment, raising strategy, all of those things. I would encourage people not to raise too much money unnecessarily, even though they can. I think that's kind of a contrarian opinion. One of my mentors from when I was 19, and I still speak to today, is a guy named Kevin Hartz, who is the founder and CEO of Eventbrite, and was a partner at Founders Fund over there with Peter Thiel. One of the best operators I know, and he used to tell his teams and tell me that constraints breed creativity. Right, So in a world where there's capital all over the place and you've got everybody wanting to invest in startups and all these things, it's not always what's right for the company. And I've seen it over and over again with all the companies I've been a part of. When you are forced to make hard decisions and to prioritize because you have limited resources, you make much better decisions. And so keeping some type of grit within the company and some type of determination to remain focused and be forced to focus as a team to some degree is really valuable. That doesn't mean you do it to a degree that you know you run out of money, but it's just something to keep an eye on because I think most founders, most businesses think the more they raise, the better. And I think there's a lot of data points, I mean, continue to be a lot of data points to prove that that not to be the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially after you hit the public markets, because that lack of discipline definitely doesn't carry over. That's right. So, Andrew, on a more personal level, what is the most fulfilling aspect or where do you find the most meaning out of building a business?
1: For me, it's building a community around whatever you're working on. And that community could be the team and the employees, it could be your customers and the way that they feel when they get your product or how they talk about it or how energized they are by how it makes them feel, but time in again, over and over and over again, the thing that kind of always energizes me the most and that means the most to me is, you know, the people you're working with and the way you're helping people and how they're reacting to the stuff that you're doing. Like all of that is really most energizing. And, you know, no matter the value of your company, whether it's $100,000 value and it's a, a small business you run or, $5 million startup or a billion dollar unicorn or a $20 billion public company. When I talk to founders and CEOs of that whole range, the things that motivate them are often, you know, people related, not necessarily money related or actually financial success related. So that's probably how I would frame it.
0: That's really wonderful. And then has there been a book or a movie or TV show that's changed your perspective recently and why?
1: I'd probably list a whole bunch of TV shows my girlfriend's making me watch recently, but I don't know (laughs) if they're influencing my life in material ways. (laughs) Creativity Inc. is a really phenomenal book. It's probably my favorite book. It's a book about the inner workings of Pixar, which is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, creative worlds that has built a foundation, set of processes, and a culture that just consistently comes out with number one hits. They do it repeatedly. They do it time and again and over and again and over again. And they're very systematic and thoughtful about how they do it. And so that book I've found to be phenomenal in in helping me think about how you structure teams and how you structure processes and how you structure cultures to set them up for creative success and building things that really matter to people.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Once again, a big thank you to Andrea for joining us today. If you're looking for a frictionless and easy way to treat your body better, I'd recommend you check out hims and hers. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which revolves around our female founder special. And that includes Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girl Boss, as well as Leah Busk from TaskRabbit. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heazy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.